with gratitude, prayer, and blessings. Live from Jerusalem. This is General Ike, building Jerusalem. I'm here at the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies with uh, my dear friend and teacher, Rev. Mike Foyer. Hi, Rev. Mike. Thanks for joining Hi. me. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? It's good to see you here. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Mike Foyer has a unique take on the Jewish context of history and the Jewish idea, the idea of Jewish history as a sort of lens through which history can be seen rather than uh, merely a sequence of events with its own narrative. So uh, I guess I just want to start by asking you about that, if you could lay out that idea in its broad sense. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big idea, and I've devoted the last 10 years of my life, really, to developing it. But there's a couple of pieces, I think, that will help shift people's thinking about what history is and about what Am Yisrael, what the Jewish people really have to add to the discussion. First of all, it's important to remember that for most of the history of history, we were talking about dead white men kings and their wars, and all the stuff that I learned in high school. I don't know how your high school education was, but there was a very narrow frame for what actually mattered in history. And then after a certain amount of time, really in the 60s, it started in the 20s, but really in the 60s, feminist history, black history, it began to throw lenses down on history as it had been taught up until then. And it's important that there were lenses and not subplots, because women's history which was always a way of tracing the history of women through history as we know it, is a subplot. Feminist history is a lens with which to examine all history in a critical eye, to ask the questions that weren't being seen, to, to focus on the issues of gender that had never been exposed. In the same way, black history did the same thing. You could, you could look at a subplot of African and black history, or you could use black history as a lens with which you critically view world history. And so in the same way, I think that Jewish history, for most of its teaching past has been a subplot whereas i believe that jewish history is once again another lens which can help us expose a deeper understanding of our past and in particular i'm interested in the in the history of consciousness because we are a people that has been telling our story for as long as i won't get into arguments with the far east of who's older than who but as long as any other people that i'm aware of and the fact that we're telling our story and both living it brings about a, a sense of self-awareness that we call consciousness. And that has developed through time. And so my framework for Jewish history is it's really Jewish consciousness in its historical context. Meaning, I'm primarily interested in the way in which we understand our experience. The way in which we know ourselves and the way in which we build our identity. And the sort of fact points, the datum, if you will, of history of people, places, names, wars, etc. are critical for understanding that but they're insufficient, really, for unfolding what it is that Jewish history has to offer. So that's one side. The other side to understand, which is really the most important, is there is no word for history in Hebrew. Right? If you were going to go to university here in the fair city of Jerusalem at the Hebrew U, and you wanted to study history, what department would you be in? History department? Historia. Historia. Right. It's a Greek word. It's a Greek word whose origins are, of course, with Herodotus, the father of history, Right? He wrote the histories. And anyone who knows anything about Jewish history knows that our relationship with the Greeks is somewhat love-hate. Right? There's, there's a deep bonding there and a, and a tremendous rift. And the fact that the word history actually comes not just in its etymology, but in its cultural basis and this sort of intellectual framework from Greek culture ought to give us pause when we begin to speak about Jewish history. Right, One of the great Jewish his historians of the 20th century um, was Yerushalmi. Um, and he posited, in the footsteps of many other people, the notion that the truth of the matter is memory is the primary frame with which the Jews are encouraged to relate to their past. right? And that when we speak about Jewish memory rather than Jewish history, we're coming closer to what the Torah and traditional Jewish wisdom envisions as our relationship to the past. Now here is the difference. is Where's your memory located? In the past or the present? The present. Exactly, because you only recall things to where you are, right? So therefore, your memory is always a process of integrating the past into your present identity. 
Right? We summon up stories. I'm sure there are things you can remember and things you can't. I'm sure if you went to one of your siblings or your close family friends, and you started to talk about some story that happened in your childhood. At some point, they look at you and say, um, I was there and that's not how it happened. Right? The, what we can remember and the way in which we remember it is more about who we are now than whatever happened then. Right? But there's a further trick to it. And this is where I believe the depth of the Torah's vision of time comes is that, did you see it? You know what that was? There it goes again. That was the present. Present is ephemeral. Right? Unless you spend a lot of time on mindfulness work, you know that it's quite difficult to be present to the present. And so therefore, when we talk about memory being an integration of the past into the present, what we really mean is that your identity is future-oriented. We live in a tension between memory of what was and either aspiration or anxiety, depending on which side of the bed you woke up on, of what will be. And so the full vision that I'm bringing to Jewish history is learning to tell a story of the past, which can create a present identity that will get us to the future that I believe, because I'm a religious Jew, God desires. Right? That there's a story in the Torah, and that story is not about the past. It's actually about the future. And we as a people are meant to live it. So that's the general, those two pieces. First of all, remembering that Jewish history in the true historical sense should not be a subplot, but actually needs to be a critical lens, which is thrown down on all world history. And then in a more um, sort of traditional indigenous sense, if you will, there's no word for history in Hebrew. So therefore, why are we chasing around after some foreign god in order to understand our relationship to our past? Let's look into our own sources and figure out what it is that we're meant to do in relationship to what was. And I will assert that as much as we are a people that venerates its past and remembers its past, we're primarily future-oriented. Very interesting. So the like the constant injunctions throughout the Torah to say remember the Shabbat and remember Amalek and remember the Exodus from Egypt and to actually live these things out through ritual. I mean, this is the backbone in, in law. I mean, noteworthy that all those things you're meant to remember, you, of course, never experienced yourself, right? And so that right away, we're tipped off to the idea that the word Zahor as remember is insufficient. It's an insufficient definition, unless you break it into two words, remember, meaning reattach these events into your present identity in a way which they shape you. But if that's the goal of shaping you, then it's really about the future. Because if I'm shaping your present identity, what I'm doing is not shaping your relationship to the past. I'm defining the future that you'll have. Right? In, in this sense, at the risk of, of using some philosophical language, it's my understanding that the Torah is what we would call a narrative epistemology. Right? It is a story that shapes its readers and makes them so deeply invested in the story, both through narrative, like I read the stories, I read the rabbinic articulations of the stories, etc., but also through law. Right? I, I eat this, I don't eat that. I go here, I don't go there. On this day, I do this. On that day, I do that. On this day, I don't do anything at all. Right? Those types of actions shape your relationship to the world. They shape your epistemology, your way of knowing the world. You engage the world in a very different way when you lay tefillin, when you wrap you know, the tefillin on your arm every morning, or when you will go into this restaurant and you won't go into that. Or if you do go into this one to sit with a friend, you don't eat the food, etc., etc. This shapes the way in which you know the world. And that itself is driven by the story. Why else would you do it? But it makes you into the type of person that when you look at the story, you see different things. Right? It's a story that shapes its readers in order the readers can turn around and birth its new understanding into the world in which they actually live. This is how we can be the products of a story that happened 3,000 plus years ago and is still as relevant today as it ever was. More so even, I would argue. Here we are in the rebuilt Jerusalem after all. Okay, so... Could you give a particular example? The, the thing about uh, Kashuit is, I suppose, a, sort of a softball. And I guess you can kind of really easily see how the uh, inability to go into certain restaurants, the inability to eat certain food with certain people is, is going to shape your world. But uh, something I hear a lot is from people who maybe put on to fill in automatically since they turned 13, mm -hmm. for whom it doesn't seem to really shift the world at all. It's just like one more thing to check off the... That's right oh. up until you get caught in a layover between two flights and you have to do it in an airport. Right? The, the, the challenge of the people you're speaking about is that, that, that tefillin is part of an unreflective life. 
right? We do what we do because this is what we do and that's who we are. And and that's good for a holding pattern. I don't mean to dismiss it at all. And certainly on a sort of legal halakhic level, it has full validity. But my point is in terms of consciousness, consciousness happens through interruption, right? You When you're in your stream of consciousness, you're not conscious at all. It's when you break out of that and become aware you either come to rest out of that stream of consciousness or you rise above it. However, whatever metaphor appeals to you, that's when you become aware, self-aware, which is really what consciousness is. So therefore, you know, I remember once I had a uh, roommate, his friend came over at the end of his year here at Pardes and he was glowing. And I said to him, wow, you're looking really excited. What happened? He said, I just put on tefillin for my first time. So I was curious, you've been here all year. It was the end of the school year. Why did you do it? Today, he said, well, I'm leaving tomorrow, and I just thought I, I wanted that experience. I wanted to know what it was to put on to fill in. And at first, I thought that was amazing, and it was amazing. God bless him that he went and tried something new. But after a while, I began to think about it and said to myself that, you know, that's not what to fill in is. To fill in is putting on every single morning. And then when you have a stomach problem and you, and you can't hold your, your tummy in, well, I don't put on today. And when you feel sick and you're tired and you don't really want to get up, I do it anyway. And when you're in the airport... And you are basically, it's the equivalent of stripping yourself naked and jumping up and down painted green as you wrap these strange leather things around your arm and head. I don't know if you've ever done it, but it is, it is quite an experience. And that's where you become conscious of the fact that you are binding yourself, literally, to a story which transcends the details of time and place. So that's what I would say. And it is encouraged. Of course, there are words in those boxes. And those words are meant to connect you to a story. One of the problems also is how many people actually think about what it says in them before they put them on. So this seems like a good opportunity to uh, enlighten some of us who aren't overly familiar with what it says in those boxes. So first of all, there are the sections of the of the Shema, of the Declaration of the Unity of God, together with the relationship of reward and punishment You know that is found in the second paragraph. Right, and we also have just to keep it very general for for readers who aren't or listeners, sorry, who aren't as familiar with the Jewish text. We have the Exodus of e- from a reminder for the Exodus from Egypt, um, and the special nature of the firstborn, together with the commandment of actually binding these signs upon your arms and the reminder between your eyes. So that's like in a nutshell what you're looking at there. And there's there's a lot, there's a lot. The unity of God, the Exodus from Egypt, reward and punishment, the whole question of firstborn, which is a critical question in Jewish history. And, you know, of course, the act of binding. So the the uh, actual commandment to bind tefillin is inside the tefillin themselves? One of its statements, yes. Okay. So that seems like a really interesting uh, link because it's, it's sort of uh, what I'm seeing from this is you've got the, the fundamental, like the Shema's, the, the, the declaration of faith, if you will, the, the central, like this is what we believe, and then the exodus is that this is where we came from, mm-hmm. and the firstborn is the sort of, this is how we, I mean, a This is who we are. Who we God are. calls us, B'ni B'chori Yisrael. This is my firstborn child, Israel. And don't forget that when a child is born into the world, there it's really two birthdays. I celebrate two birthdays in my life, my own and my firstborn child's, because that's the day I was born into the world as a father. Now, this is a fundamentally different relationship between God and creation when he declares Israel to be his firstborn. A fundamentally different relationship between God and creation. Yes. To have a child... I mean, listen, the Christians got this probably better than anybody else. Why do you think it is that they were so focused on their Savior being the Son of God? And Something which uh, they probably were smart enough to know would cause some theological issues. Right. Nevertheless, I think they understood full well that that's the power of proposing a new covenant. Right. A new covenant means that there is a new relationship between God and creation. And that means on some level, as it were, God has changed. Or let's just say something which was not yet actualized in God's relationship to the world has come to fruition, if you want to avoid the theological mess of God changing. Um, but but in, in the in the Exodus story, that's precisely, and that's how it begins when, when God makes this declaration, B'ni B'chori Yisrael, my firstborn Israel. And we've been duking it out with Christians in particular about who's firstborn for quite some time. That's very interesting. So when we look at uh, the Exodus saga particularly and the sort of idea of, of God uh, changing, at least in manifestation rather than in essence, uh, so this is, I mean, 
related to, he said, when it's written there that your ancestors, uh, your ancestors call me by this, by only by the name Kal uh, Shaddai. Yes, Musael Shaddai. Yes. And right, so that that's a sort of that change in the name of God is is uh, a manifestation of the changing relationship between God and creation. I think the names of God always indicate a motive relationship. And I think that what's happening for Moshe there is exactly that. I mean, Moshe's great struggle throughout his life is the ability to sort of um, adapt to what's coming next, which is fairly odd for someone so wise. But but um, in the end of the day, he is on some level unable since he is not the one who leads Israel into the promised land. Right? He at some level belongs to the generation of the Exodus and not the generation of the conquest. And in that case, he says to God, like, well, I don't get it. You sent me here to make things better, and things got worse. And God says, that's because you've, you know, up until now, the Jews have only known me as you know, the one who makes promises. Kel Shaddai, right? But now, right? and they weren't sort of like, I wasn't known to them through this four-lettered name of God, which is the wholeness, what was, what will be, and what is. Right, so so this was a, a again another major shift, and these are always you can trace it through the the Bible. I know the biblical critics like to make a lot about sort of the committee approach to writing the Torah and how there's the elokist and the whateverist in this one. Okay, fine, maybe yes, maybe no, but I think a, a a simpler reading, a more human reading, is that the names of God indicate different modes of relationship, and I promise you, it's a rich, rich path for learning what the Torah has to teach you if you follow those shifting names. I'll give you an example. The story of the binding of Isaac. A story that many people find challenging. God telling Abraham to sacrifice his only son. One of the keystones for unlocking that story is the fact that it's the Shem Elohim which Abraham hears asking him to sacrifice his son. But only at the last moment when he stopped is it the four-letter name of God which he hears holding him back. Right? There's a revolution which Avram undergoes there. And he says, Elohim Yireh, oh, the God, the world God, he sees. Now remember, Avram has known the four-letter name of God his whole life. But his, but his revelation at the end of it is, he renames that place, Hashem Yireh, the four-letter name of God sees. It's, there's a much different thing saying, to, I can reduce God to all the powers of the world, and I can understand how I am seen by God. Because I've reduced God to something comprehensible. But the of the infinite? I don't understand how the infinite has a relationship to me. And that's what Abraham sees at the end. Hashem Yireh. God sees. But God in this full sense. How does that work? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Uh, so just to pull this back to the, uh, the, the story into the tefillin and the way that you're binding yourself to that story with the mm-hmm. tefillin. Uh, so you have the, the Shema, the statement of faith. You have the Exodus, like the statement of the creation of the people and the firstborn, uh, the people's relationship to God. And then you have the actual passage commanding the binding of uh, the Tefillin themselves. Yes. So there's this kind of um, weird recursion going on where the the commandment to be bound is itself being bound yes. on the arm. And it's, that's very deliberate. Oh, it's, it's clearly deliberate because... On some level, we are what we do in the world, right? This is one of the great powers of law, right? Law is an opportunity for the clarification of values through decisions that demand action, right? We've talked about this before. If you recall, I call it the hot lasagna problem, right? The hot lasagna problem is you're walking down the street holding a hot lasagna tray and your pants start to fall down. Now, you've got one of two options, you can drop lasagna or you can pull up your pants. And whatever you may have thought about wasting food or public you know, embarrassment or nudity, et cetera, up till now, whatever you may have thought about it, you're about to find out what you actually believe because you have to make a decision right now. And that's the power of law is that action demands a clarity of values. And so therefore you bind this law to your arm, specifically, by the way, to your weak arm, not to your strong one. Right? Because it's not a binding to control, but rather a binding to strengthen. And in the same way when I used to, in my younger days, lift weights when I was a wrestler, when you lift a certain amount of weights, you use a belt on your back because your back can't handle that pressure. In the same way, when I bind to fill in my arm, I'm not curtailing 
the ability of my hand to act in the world. I'm strengthening it. And those are fundamentally different ways of relating to the law. And it's an important one for people who struggle with the idea that there's law at all, much less law given to us by God. Okay. Uh, I don't want to get too far off the, the uh, central topic of Jewish history, but just could you give an example of the way that that uh, might manifest in an individual's life? That Which? The idea of the binding as being a strengthening force rather than a restraining force. Yeah, sure. I think that the example of Kashrut is a great one. You know, all over the world today, people talk about mindfulness, consciousness, and eating is probably one of the places in which people have the least mindful and therefore most damaging relationship to the world. You know, whether it's obesity, whether it's, um, you know, issues of, uh, of true, uh, like, eating disorders, whether it's just unhealthy eating patterns, emotional eating, reward, punishment eating, etc. I'm sure you're familiar with all these phenomena. So, Kashrut says... Your relationship to eating, and by the way, as it's corollary, the idea of saying blessings before and after one eats, your relationship to eating is defined by the verse, Tzadich Ochel L'Sova Nafsho, that a righteous person eats for the satisfaction of their soul. Now, your, your soul without your body doesn't exist, as far as we know. Who knows what happens in other worlds? Here in this world, it doesn't exist. Therefore, you have to feed your body, and you want to give your body what it needs, and you want to give it even what it likes, but the purpose is to feed the soul. So therefore, you know, I'll give you an example from my own life. The, when I became religious, my family is not religious, one of the great challenges I found was eating out together. My family likes to go out to dinner. When I'm in the States and we visit, they always want to go out. Um, and, you know, depending on where we are, the option for kosher restaurants is very limited. In the beginning, it was extremely awkward because I would go and I wouldn't eat. And then everybody says, oh, you got to eat. You know, please this and that. And, so, and then after a while, you know what happened? My insistence on not eating, but my insistence on going with them made something very clear. You know what it was? I'm not here to eat food. I'm here to spend time with you. And what had been a point of conflict between us became a real point of pride. Like, gosh, yeah, you know, the truth is, Cousin Larry, I'm not really sure we invite him to this fancy restaurant. Maybe he's here for the dessert. But Mike, he's not even eating. You know, and for me, it's it strengthened my resolve of what is actually important to me in my life. That's a, it's a small example, but I think a, a worthwhile one. Okay, so let's move on to some examples of of how this this lens of history plays out in uh, in actual events from Jewish history. Mm-hmm. So something I've I've heard you speak on before is specifically uh, the book of Esther. <laughs> oh, the book of Esther. I don't know if I really want to delve into that. You want, you want a great example of how this works in sure. history today? Because I think there's something today, and here we are in Jerusalem, and it's kind of swirling in the air all the time. Um, I, I think that the challenge of the boundaries of Jewish peoplehood is a great place in history where we can see this. What do I mean? Who was the first Jewish convert, classically? That we point to. Ruth? Ruth, right? She's the archetypical convert. We speak about on, on the holiday of Shavuot, we read the book of Ruth, and, and, and why on Shavuot? Because, of course, when we receive the Torah, we all became converts, etc., etc., etc. So, there's one problem with that perception, is that when we speak about conversion, we're talking about someone entering, entering into a covenantal relationship, a commitment which is embodied in, in laws and traditions, has certain ritual acts that you have to do, depending on your male or female, etc. Right? But if you look carefully at what Ruth said, she, what does she say? She doesn't just say, your God will be my God. She says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. And only then does she say, your God will be my God. And I believe in that, she's tracing through Jewish time an issue which is pursuing us to this day, which is what are the boundaries of peoplehood. In the Tanakh, the boundary of peoplehood was geographic. Right? She says, I'll go where you go. And you want to be an Israelite? Go to the land of Israel. Ergo, anybody in the land of Israel is an Israelite. You know, the idea of intermarriage as we know it does not exist in the Tanakh. Not in the sense of a of someone who comes from a foreign culture mingles with Am Yisrael and retains an attachment to that foreign culture. The best proof of this I can give is in the in one of the most difficult and, and well-known stories of King David's life when he marries Bathsheba, right? The precursor to his marrying Bathsheba was his offing Uriah Hachiti, Uriah the Hittite. Wait, Uriah the Hittite doesn't sound like an Israelite. 
And he was married to Bathsheba, a woman who we're assuming was an Israelite because she becomes the mother of Messiah. <laughs> She's Shlomo's mother. Right? But, but we don't seem to have any problem with this whatsoever. Because there isn't. Because the boundaries of Israelite peoplehood was a geographic boundary. That was broken when the geographic broken boundary was broken with the destruction of the first temple. At the return to Zion, what we call Shiva Zion, under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Persian period. So now we're talking about between the 6th and the 4th centuries before the Common Era. right? Then we see, and you see it in the text quite sort of um, noticeably, a shift from geography to genealogy. Why? First of all, the geographic boundaries had been broken. Second of all, the vast majority of the Jewish people did not return from the Babylonian exile back to the land of Israel. So any model of peoplehood which was confined to the geography of the land of Israel was just too limiting. It didn't reflect the reality. And so you see in the book of Ezra two things. First of all, a focus on genealogy. It's remarkable how much ink lineage gets there. It's not racial in the sense that we think of it today. Think of it as tribal familial, although that grades into racial as we know it. I'm just saying that that terminology was lacking then. But it means something else as well. It's in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah that the idea of intermarriage actually becomes a problem. Why? Because there, they are now, instead of a majority culture within its geographic boundaries, a minority culture returning to its geographic boundaries, but nevertheless faced with the fact that these other cultures around them aren't going to go away. And so to marry a woman from the Ammonites meant bringing the Ammonites into the most inner sanctum of of Am Yisrael. Last piece, just to show you how it plays out, once the Second Temple period really progresses... And the sages realized, you know, the Jews were scattered all over the Roman Empire before the Second Temple was destroyed. Josephus says that they were in every province of the Roman Empire, and the archaeologists more or less agree. Right? Geography was gone on that level as a center point. Genealogy was insufficient as we had these masses of God-fearers, people who hadn't quite crossed the line and certainly didn't come from Jewish lineage, so to speak, but they were on the team. They were part of the story. And so the rabbis began to delve deeply into the sources and say, no, what? You know what the reality is here? We look at Sinai. When we came out from Egypt, none of us were Jews. We didn't have a geographic boundary. We were one big family, except there were a lot of other people with us. And what happened there? We all committed to the Torah. It was an ideological transformation, if you will, from geography to genealogy to ideology. And suddenly you have a boundary of peoplehood, which serves us now for 1,500 years. But what's the epilogue? When the Zionists came back to the land of Israel, they returned geography subtly to the center. Right? When they wrote the law about the, what's called the law of return, which allows any Jew to claim instant citizenship upon their physical, notice, physical return to the land of Israel, you know what the definition of Jew there is? You have one Jewish grandparent. It's not the halachic, legal, ideological definition that had come with us out of the destruction of the Second Temple. You know who gave us that definition? The hated one. Yes, Yamach Shemo. But it was, made perfect sense that Ben-Gurion would say anybody who was enough of a Jew to die in Auschwitz is enough of a Jew to live in the land of Israel. That makes perfect sense. But Menachem Begin got up and raged against him and said, you're making a historic mistake. If you use any definition other than the one we've used for the last 1,500 years for the boundaries of peoplehood, it will create a disaster. And lo and behold, we are now sitting in that mess because we're in a country where the inconceivable has happened. You have a young Russian soldier who is not halachically Jewish, he's not legally Jewish, but he's born in this country, he speaks Hebrew, he serves in a combat unit, and God forbid dies in defense of the state of Israel, of the people of Israel, and they won't bury him in a Jewish cemetery. The boundaries of peoplehood have broken down, and yet you see how those, all those pieces were right there in the Book of Ruth. You can trace them through history, and now they are returning as the Zionist project is attempting to rebuild what was in hopes that it will be a reflection of the ideal of what could be. So, is there a, a sense in which the, um, uh, I, I guess the the monkey can be put back in the box? Is there a sense in which, by virtue of having uh, sovereign dominion here, that the 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 question of what is a Jew could return much more to the uh, to the Davidic system? Slowly but surely, I think it already is. And this speaks to another um, deeply challenging element of this period of history that we're living in, which is up until now, the primary gatekeepers uh, sort of on the, on the bounds of peoplehood have been the rabbis. 
because the primary boundary of peoplehood was religious. But we live in an age that um, I've come to call the end of the age of the rabbis. Right? That, that it is not sufficient. The halachic view is not sufficient to, to address the reality of the Jewish people today. Not just in this country. Here we are in Pardes. And many of my students are incredible people. They've come from across the globe to learn Torah for an entire year. Right? They're committed members of their communities. They're active educators. You fill in the blank. Amazing people. And I have been there and watched a woman weep when she discovered that halakhically she was not Jewish because her father was Jewish her whole life. She was a, a big-time educator in her reform community. She was a community leader in her synagogue. She ne- never crossed her mind that she wasn't Jewish. Now, are you telling me that she's not Jewish? I can tell you she's not halakhically Jewish. That I can say with confidence. But is that a sufficient definition? It's not just within the geographic now. And it's not just enough within the lineal. Sort of the, you know, the genealogy is not enough either. There is some new model of peoplehood, which I believe will demand that we actually learn to tell our story in a way in which it will get us where we want to go. You know, if you look at the, to give you the counterexample, the Haredi world, the ultra-Orthodox world, is very clear on this method. I don't know if they're conscious about it. But they're very clear on this method. When you look at the art scroll history books, you will see history as it ought to have been. Hmm. History as it ought to have been because they have a very clear vision on what they want the future to look like. And what you're seeing is their reading of, of their, their desire for the future masquerading as their reading of the past. But in this particular question, they're very clear. The Jews have always been rab- rabbinic. And the rabbinic law has always been what was the gatekeeper to peoplehood. Ergo, in order to be the Jews, you must have rabbinic law to be the gatekeeper to peoplehood. That's it. It's very clean. I think it's not an honest reading of history, nor do I think it's a sufficient addressing of the complexity of the problems we face as a people. But at least it's clear. You know, whereas the non-Orthodox world is just in a muddle. Why do you think that's not an honest reading of history? Because I don't think it's true. Okay, could you point I, to... Like examples? I said, I think that reading the Tanakh, you can see that the idea of um, Judaism as a religion based primarily on law and the oral tradition... Is, is not the center organizing point of Jewish identity. There was no Jews. They were of Israelite identity, if you will. Right? Um, I, and I think my reading also of the Persian period, at which many of these issues came to the fore and our spiritual leadership engaged them head on. And furthermore, it just in, in the way in which you can trace the emergence of a halakhic development around the question from the book of Ezra onwards, whereas it's simply not there earlier. So what do you see the uh, role of the physical city of Jerusalem as being in this story? In, in the story as a whole or in the question of, of peoplehood? Uh, in the story as a whole. Jerusalem is the center point. You know, one of the most beautiful things, have you ever seen the map on the outside of the Jerusalem City Hall of the area? The hey, three-petaled clover. The three-petaled, uh, what's it called? Clover. Clover, yes. Uh, three-petaled clover. Right, it's, um, I believe, a, a church map originally. Um, reflective of the fact that Jerusalem is at the center of the world, right? But that was that map was made in an era where maps had edges, beyond which it said Darby dragons or, or whatever they said, right? And today we live on a globe, and we're very aware we live on a globe, and so therefore, you know what the center of a globe is? At least the surface of it, everywhere and nowhere. Yes, exactly. Which means that consciousness comes to the fore. That that you are at the center if you are able to organize the whole world around where you are. That's what makes it the center. And so Jerusalem is meant to be the center of consciousness. Jerusalem has always been the place where heaven and earth meet. And since we've moved beyond the medieval sense that heaven is actually above that blue thing you see over your head, and we've come to think of heaven in just, let's just say, very different ways, most of which are about consciousness. What Jerusalem is meant to do is bring you to that consciousness that heaven and earth indeed do meet. Now, here's the thing, is that I'm not a believer that Jerusalem is an abstraction, that wherever you are, you're in Yerushalayim. Because as Jews, we live an embodied existence. You don't have relationships to the abstract. I don't love the idea of my wife. I love my wife. And that means I love her when she's happy. I love her when she's sad. I love her when she's being nice to me. I love her when she's being mean. I love her when, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There has to be a reality an embodied reality that allows for real relationship. And that's what Jerusalem is. It is a place where we can go 
to meet God in our physical essence. Does that mean God has a physical essence? No. But since everything is within God, then physicality is there too. And so Jerusalem, if you trace its story through time, it's the point of reference for the Jewish people. It is indeed where we're always headed. And as Reb Shlomo Kalbach used to say, that you ask a Jew where they are, wherever they are, they're headed toward Jerusalem. Even on their way into the gas chambers, you ask, stop a Jew and say, Yidin, where are you headed? I'm on my way to Jerusalem. Now, that may sound just like a nice, warm, fuzzy story, but the reality is it's true. Here we are. And if any person in my family or yours had stopped along the way and said, that's it, I'm not headed to Jerusalem anymore, we wouldn't be sitting here. Right? And one of the great challenges of the world as we have it today is that because of the incredible mobility and because of the incredible privilege of having a rebuilt Jerusalem, which, I mean, just think about it. 200 years ago, if you stopped a Jew in Europe and said, listen, I want you to go over that office there. They're going to give you money and put you in a big silver tube and fly you through the air to the rebuilt Jerusalem. They would have said to you, when did the Messiah come and no one told me? And this is the reality in which we live, which poses a particular problem, which is, well, then why go? I mean, listen, it's messy. Jerusalem is a messy place. There's politics. There's religion. Sometimes there's blood in the streets. And yet I will hold out that it is both the center point of our story and is where we are on our way to. And here's the trick. Even when you're here, you're still on your way there. Okay, even when you're here, you're still on your way there. Outside of Jerusalem, you, when we pray at the end of uh, at the end of the holidays, particularly at the end of Pesach, we pray for the Shana Haba'a Birushalayim, right? In the next year in Jerusalem. But here in Jerusalem, you know what we sing? The Shana Haba'a Birushalayim Habnuya, the rebuilt Jerusalem. Now, on one level, we're talking about the temple. Let it be soon. Let it be now. But even when the temple stands, we're not going to stop saying that because the beauty of what it is to be human is to know that the story doesn't have an end. It's a retreating ridgeline. The reason that you, that you, maybe not you personally, but people are so often plagued with the sense that they haven't realized their potential is because you can't. Your potential is infinite because you have a piece of God within you. And if you have a piece of the infinite within you, you will never realize your potential. That doesn't mean things won't get better. It doesn't mean that things won't come together and they will coalesce around this vision, which is Jerusalem. But it is so important to remember that that horizon, there is no end. Because you know why? Things in this world that come to an end are dead. And we're about life. It's the most important thing the Torah tells you. Choose life. If you're going to choose life, that means you're going to build, you're going to grow, you're going to move forward. And when you have something built in your hands, you're going to see it as an inspiration to make something better. Okay, so bringing that to the like very practical side of things, if we can, what um, you've uh, lived here and taught here for some time. 16 years, yeah. And do you see us as heading uh, in the right direction, roughly speaking? <sighs> in the right direction. I know enough about history to know that the, um, the currents of, uh, of a, on a year cycle Right, this sort of like you know cut and thrust of politics and the panic over the Kotel and the and the battles within the government are it's a mistake to judge by them. I believe that we are headed in the right direction by the very fact that we're sitting in Jerusalem having this conversation. But I don't believe there's a guarantee. Right? The number one challenge I see facing us is how to tie people into the story. Right? How do we teach the Torah in a way in which it becomes a story that the whole world can share? And it doesn't mean that we disappear as a people and we just fade into sort of homogenous universalism. Because a good story has characters, right? Just like a, a healthy ecosystem has diversity. It's very important for us as Jews to be who we are, but we have to figure out what our mission is. That's the number one thing. Practically speaking, instead of asking who is a Jew right now, I think we should be asking, what is a Jew? Like, what is it that we are here to do? We have a mission. We've been put in this place our story is we have a mission. And, and to focus on that, the number one thing I would say to people is come. Come now. Come live here. Come visit. You know, See it as a point of reference. In particular, I would say to the sort of progressive liberal world, which is so challenged by the reality of Jerusalem today, you should come even more so. Because with all the warts and bumps, this is democracy. And if you have 100,000 people having egalitarian prayer at the Kotel on every major holiday, things will change, even if they're not citizens, and doubly so if they are, right? My great fear is that 
Israel for a long time has been a religious Disneyland, religious cultural Disneyland for many Jews. And you don't go to Disneyland when, when you don't feel welcome. Right? I want people to feel welcome, but there needs to be a reality here that they engage. So do you think that Disneyland Disneylandification of Jerusalem is a good thing or a bad thing? No, I think on some level it's in- inevitable. I think all places of pilgrimage on, on some level present a, a theatrical experience. And I don't think that's necessarily bad. I think theater is an important place for catharsis and, and self-exploration and for fun and, 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 for, and for feeling like, wow, I did it. You know, I, don't, I don't discount that importance, but it's also a lived reality. It's a lived reality and it's complex and it just goes back to, to well, what are we meant to be doing here? What are we meant? Well, it said, like I said, I am pushing now to shift the question from who is a Jew to what is a Jew. And if we can figure out what is a Jew, then we'll decide who's in. And how could we figure that out? Well, it's again, we need to go back to our story. What is, you know, there were a lot of people in, the, in this story before we were Jews. All the way back from Adam Arishon, from the first man, who certainly wasn't a Jew. Avram wasn't a Jew either. He wasn't even an Israelite. Not Yitzchak, not Yaakov. Right? The children of Israel aren't born until the Exodus. And the idea of a Jew isn't born until the destruction of the first temple. Right? We need to begin to look at the core elements of our story and the mission. If you believe God put us here for a reason, then we ought to wonder what it is. An unreflective life, to borrow a quote, is not worth living. Okay, so um, this, this sounds like great stuff in the abstract. In a practical sense, uh, a lot of people feel like uh, there, there is a very clear answer to these questions, but they have uh, profound disagreements as to what that clear answer is. So, uh, I mean, the way I'm hearing it is as a sort of journey of discovery. Well, yeah, I mean, listen, why do you accept someone else's answer? I mean, if, you, if people feel like there's a very clear answer to what a Jew is and what the mission is, and they disagree with it, well, they have one of two choices. They can write themselves out of the story. God forbid it does happen. Listen, don't forget, four-fifths of Jews didn't come out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. The vast majority didn't come back from the Babylonian exile. And Lord knows most didn't survive the destruction of the Second Temple. Mm-hmm. We're not a people that's about numbers. But nevertheless, I don't want to encourage that. Right? If you feel that you are a Jew and you don't accept or you don't like, or it doesn't speak to you, the answers of what a Jew is, then, well, get into the mix. We're Jews. People argue about it. But if you're going to have an argument, you need to share a language, which means you need to know your story. Because the greatest challenge I see out there is so many Jews don't know their story. By the way, it's, it's true here in Israel, as it is in Chutzlar, as it is outside of Israel. It's just here, there's more of the Brighton Beach phenomenon of Jewish, right? I'm Jewish because my neighbor's Jewish, because the bus driver's Jewish, because the guy down the street is Jewish. Where that's... We're Jewish. That's what we are. That won't last. It can't last. Because not only is it not who we are, it's already under attack by the sort of global culture. right? And by the way, it's hard to be a Jew. right? And So if you don't have a reason to do it, then people tend to give up. So I would say, if you, if you want practically the, the approach, you need to learn. You need to learn your story. You need to engage, engage your community, and specifically engaging in discourse with people who hold different opinions, right? That is always the way that Am Yisrael has come to a greater clarity on truth, because truth is bigger than any one of us. So seeking out spaces in which you can engage those who disagree with you, I think is one of the most important acts you can do to unearth what is a Jew. So when you, when you say that engaging is, uh, has always been our way of finding clarity. Can you point to specific examples of that from history? Oh, for sure. I mean, the Second Temple classically was destroyed for a sinat chinam, for causeless hatred. But what do we mean by that? People were fighting in the streets for control of the Temple, for control of Jerusalem, because they believed that they were the true Israel and everybody else was wrong. Does sound familiar? Right? Um, and, and Jerusalem burned from within before the Romans ever breached the walls because the Jews were fighting each other. And yet, what emerged out of the destruction of the Second Temple was the rabbinic culture, whose backbone is machloket. His backbone is argument. And the key shift that the rabbis managed to pull off, something which had become sort of a schismatic sectarianism before the Temple was destroyed, became an acceptance of the fact that the truth is 
larger than we. So therefore, not only do I believe that I'm correct, but I understand the fact that I need you to believe that you're correct in order that we can now dis- you know, discourse, we can engage each other, and between us, a larger truth will emerge. Where did that way of doing things sort of go off the rails, if you believe that it has? Uh, I mean, I think one of the great challenges was the Enlightenment. When, um, you know, and, and, and uh, this is not really the time or place to discuss the full impact of the Enlightenment, um, but the Enlightenment was really characterized by an uncoupling of knowledge from tradition, right? That, that up until the Enlightenment, if I had shown you a telescope, you would have said, I don't need to look through that. I know what's there. I have a Ptolemaic view of astronomy. I know exactly what's in the heavens. And the Enlightenment amounted to, listen, don't tell me what you think. Look through the scope and tell me what you see. That empirical approach to the world was what really triggered the Enlightenment. And that in itself caused people to then look back on their tradition and say, gosh, I see this through the telescope, but they told me I ought to have seen something else. Oy vey, what does that do to my sense of knowledge? Right? And so the traditional world, in many ways, shifted into a reactionary stance. Uh, well, knowledge is bad. Knowledge is dangerous because it's undermining our story. So I believe that the health of argumentation and the sort of approach, which there are, always have been, and please God always will be, Jewish scholars of the most traditional nature who are in no way afraid of knowledge, right? But they are unfortunately a relatively rare breed because there's a social problem. Most people are not intellectually equipped or emotionally interested in engaging that level of challenge and complexity and rebuilding their world every morning. Most people want to be told, hey, this is the way it is. This is what God wants you to do. And if you do X, Y, and Z, you're going to get to the finish line. And there's a big, I don't know, pie in the sky waiting for you. Which is deeply unfortunate, in my opinion. But I, I, back to your question, you know, in terms of the modern, when did that go off the rails? And I believe it, it has gone off the rails to a certain degree. Although there are places that we try to bring it back. Um, I think it was really in the, in the very deep disruption of the Enlightenment and the Emancipation, which followed in its wake. And the challenge of freedom. But the benefit of freedom is at this point, anybody who engages in the discourse does so by choice. And therefore, on, by definition, it's much deeper. Okay, so let me see if I understand this. There is uh, that, that system that we had once of understanding each other's, uh, like of machloket, of um, under, like the idea that I have a chelek and you have a chelek, and together we have a bigger picture than either of us. And a belief in you that you're committed to the same mission as, as I am. That's a very important ingredient. Is I have a piece and you have a piece, but we're both committed to the same project. So therefore, even though I dis- deeply disagree with what you say, I'm deeply committed to you as a person because you're committed to me. That's the piece that's missing now. Is today, if you're wrong, they're the enemy. If you disagree with me, you are absolute other. That's what's happening in Am Yisrael today, and it's a tragedy. Right? We need to rebuild that vessel where, okay, agree, disagree, we are part of the same picture. But in order to do that, we have to ask the question, what is a Jew? Because the answers that have served us for the last 1,500 years may be necessary, but they're insufficient. Could you sketch out a, a more sufficient answer? I don't know if I really can at this point. Because the question is so deep and it needs to happen really in, in discourse. But But this very amorphous notion of of peoplehood, I think it serves us, right? We are a people who are living a story. It's a story that really began at creation with God's great desire that there should be other, right? That's what creation is about. God's great desire that there should be other in order that there can be relationship, right? And we have been living that story and telling that story and being shaped by that story for almost 4,000 years in a conscious sense. And so to move back toward a sense that we have a shared story and to begin to tell that story in ways that we can all hear it. Now that's going to demand changes from everyone involved from the most traditional to the most progressive. You know, if people have a desire that we tell the same story, then we're all going to be challenged in our worldview. What, what sort of challenges do you see that bringing up? I think they're fairly obvious in the traditional worldview, theological challenges, Challenges in the way this story came into our hands. How was it written down? How has it been carried through time? How, we've told the story in a way. I'm going to give you an example. At what point did Moshe become a rabbi? He's not a rabbi in the Torah. No such thing. Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe our teacher, 
was Moshe Av Hanivim, Moshe the father of the prophets. Right? And so that's a question that, that the traditional world is going to have to engage. At what point did we begin to rewrite the story to fit who we are now? Right? On the flip side, in the progressive world, people have to understand that people value things that demand something of them. I grew up in the conservative movement in America, and to me, I feel, looking back, that the great educational failure that I experienced was that everybody was afraid to demand something of anyone. To say, this is what the Torah wants, this is what God asks, or this is what our community requires, whatever it is. People don't value things that don't demand stuff of them. And so the progressive world, I think, needs to move a little bit closer to the fact that there are obligations. That, the, in fact, the core relationship that the Torah offers to Am Yisrael and therefore humanity is one of obligation. Very different than the Western discourse on rights. There is no word for rights in Hebrew either. If you own property, you don't have property rights. You have property obligations. If you get married, you don't have rights in your marriage. You have obligations in your marriage. And if you have a neighbor, you don't have rights that end where your fence begins. You have obligations to your neighbor. That's a very important shift that I believe needs to come to the center. And it's why is it so important? Because it's organic to who we are. That's the way the Torah looks at the world. Very cool. It's very cool. So... Uh, just to wrap this up, uh, if you look into the future and you see five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, uh, the Jews really getting our picture together or the people of Jerusalem getting our picture together, however you want to parse this, what does Jerusalem look like to you five years from now, 10 years from now? There's much less poverty. I think that the overwhelmingly capitalist attitude of dog-eat-dog that exists in this country today is not only um, shameful, but it's not Jewish. I think that there is an understanding that the rebuilding of the temple is essential not only to us as a people, but to the world as a whole. I think there's a shifted posture toward the non-Jews that live within our society in a sense of, um, I believe that this is our land. But I believe that if it's our land, that we're responsible for everyone that lives in it. And that sense of responsibility, again, the obligations that we have toward other that live amongst us, I believe that that will shift. I think that those are the comments that come to me right off the top of my head. Thank you. This has been an absolute pleasure. Mike Pleasure's all mine. Mike Foyer, thank you. You're very welcome, Mike. With thanks to Perrin Walker and Daniel Kenny. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.